Listen to this. I'm going to read the first eight verses and then verse 23 through 25. This is God's word for you and for me. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Then 23 through 25. Let's see here. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Lord, again, help us to remember that we're not here to learn how to be nice people or to be nicer. Help us to remember that you're your scriptures are not a textbook from which we get principles and we apply those principles and then we get results that we want. Your word is not advice. Your word is a story. It's a story that we all need to hear again and again and again. It's a story of how you created. It's the story of our rebellion. It's the story of redemption. It's the story that all things will be made new. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be caught up in that story again, to find our life in Christ, to believe, to obey, to live for the life of the world. Have your way with us, Lord. Remove the distractions that are in my mind. You know how muddled I am this morning. Help me to focus. May my words, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord. For you, Jesus, are our rock. You are our redeemer. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So there was a time that Jenny and the family and I were at a restaurant. We were eating, and it was one of the first times that we had gone out to eat after having children. Do you remember those days? You remember what it's like having kids and you can't go anywhere because... Well, you can't think straight, and you haven't slept, and you know it's going to be probably more difficult to go to a restaurant and eat than just have another bowl of cereal at home. So we're at a restaurant, and Owen, at this point, is my oldest, uh, our firstborn. Owen is, uh, is potty trained, uh, but just barely. And we're at a restaurant, and he needs to go to the bathroom. So I tell Jenny, like, look, we, I got to take him to the bathroom. And then, of course, Jenny was immediately no. You're not taking him into that filthy bathroom. I was like, well, look, we're going to do this. It's like, okay, well, he can't touch anything. So there happened to be a line to the restroom, so we had to wait our turn. We get into the restroom. It was a good-sized restroom. 
decided to go into the stall, shut, shut the door. And so I'm trying to figure this out. How in the world can we do this to where he doesn't touch anything? <laughs> so <clears throat> I did the necessary thing, and then I grabbed Owen around his legs, around his knees, and I grabbed him with my other arm under his armpits, and I leaned over the porcelain princess, <laughs> and I just held there. And I kept holding, and I started shaking. But I didn't want to make him nervous, so I didn't really say anything other than, are you sure you need to go to the bathroom, Owen? And as I'm holding him, he yells out, come on! Now remember, the bathroom was full. If you're on the outside of the door, and you look down to see if anybody's in there, guess what you see? My two feet. He's off the floor. They can only see there's one person in there at that time. So he yells out again, come on. And then finally the trickle started and he said, there it is, dad, there it is. <laughs> You could have asked me a question, Dave, what do you think about parenting or being married? And I could have given you a formal answer to say, well, I respect my wife, I listen to what Jenny says, I like being a dad, we've had fun times as a family. I could have given you a formal presentation of answering questions you might ask about who I am and my family and what it's like. Or, instead of a formal presentation, I could just tell you a story like I just did, which communicated all of those things. Make sense? In Romans chapter 3, Paul was giving us a formal answer. He was giving us a formal presentation of truth. He was laying it out for us in very tight language, and it was tightly reasoned. He gave us a formal presentation of truth. In Romans chapter 4, Paul gives us the exact same truth through story. So last week when we looked at chapter 3, we thought about the fact that God uh, finds us, God rescues us, being found in God, and we talked about the gift and the giver. Do you remember that, if you were here? So this week, we're going to look at Romans chapter 4, and we're thinking about the exact same thing and instead of thinking about the gift and the giver, we're going to think about it in this way. Experiencing the gift and enjoying the giver. That's where we're going today. Experiencing the gift and enjoying the giver. So when you look at chapter 4, you might have noticed when we read this, that Paul talks about two very significant figures, Abraham and David. So in experiencing the gift, we got to think about Abraham's life, and we got to think about David's life. So he starts talking about Abraham, and if you're one that likes to take notes, verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 25 are about Abraham, and verses 6 through 8 are about David. So Paul begins with Abraham, and he starts with this in verse 1, if you notice. What do we say? What shall we say about Abraham? What do we say about Abraham? 
Did he gain anything? What has Abraham gained? Now, you might remember Abraham was kind of a significant figure in the Old Testament. I mean, he was a guy who like left everything to follow God. And he had to wait on God and he followed some more. And he had to wait some more and follow some more. He was the guy that God said, go this direction. <laughs> well, where, God? I don't know, just go this direction. And Abraham followed God his whole life. He was not perfect, don't hear it that way. He followed God. But what did it gain him? What did he earn by following with God? Well, the text says, well, he has nothing to boast in before God. He can tell you his accomplishments. He can tell you where he went. He can tell you that he followed God, but, but with God, nothing that he did earned anything with God. So then Paul says in verse three, well, what do the scriptures say? Do you notice the contrast? Verse one, what do we say? Verse three, what do the scriptures say? And Paul takes us deeper into Abraham's life. Verse three is a quote from Genesis chapter 15. It's in Genesis 15 that one of the most amazing stories in Abraham's life is told. It's in that story that we find where it hit Abraham. Who God was, what God said, what God did for him, salvation, redemption, it hit. It was the day that it hit. Do you remember that in your life? Have you had things just hit in your life? Whether that's first coming to Jesus or whether that's growing in some new way, whether it's some truth that has just electrified your heart and your life to where you can keep coming back to it over and over. When was the last time that good news hit your life and it connected one of the songs that we sang earlier, I love the first phrase of the first verse. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? Heaven has no more to give. Is that hit? There's nothing more that heaven could give. That hit me and hits me when I sing it. I remember thinking about the story with Jesus and Peter and Peter being on the water and Peter looking to Jesus and Peter sinking down. And I remember having thought so, for so many years that this story is about me as Peter, that I need to keep my eyes on Jesus, only to realize a little while ago, as in about a year and a half ago, that story is not about me keeping my eyes on Jesus. It's about Jesus who never takes his eyes off me. It hit so Abraham has received all these promises from God. God says, you are gonna have a nation, a great nation. From you, Abraham, all the earth is gonna be blessed. Abraham, you're gonna have a son. And Abraham in Genesis 15 is like, God, I know you've said all that, but how do I know? How do I know? And God says, Abram, what I want you to do is go get some animals, cut them in half, put half on one side and half on the other. Go do it. So Abraham did. Remember, in the ancient world, people wouldn't sign documents and things to say, I'm in. They would act out consequences. In other words, God was saying, Abraham, you cut the pieces, you set them down there, and if you're not faithful, and if I'm not faithful, then may the both of us be cut in half. And God 
walked through the pieces. He walked through the middle of the carcasses on either side. He walked, God walked through the middle of those. Not Abraham. He didn't ask Abraham to walk through it. God was saying, Abraham, I will keep everything. What I told you I would do, I'll keep. And when you are going to break down because you are, and you can read about it in Genesis 12 through 24, he lies. He does all kinds. tries to take matters into his own hand by sleeping with somebody that he shouldn't. God does everything, which is all leading up to the point where Jesus would be torn and ripped apart for us. And it hit. And Abraham believed and God counted it to him, credited him, counted it, considered it righteousness. You get it? Abraham didn't do anything. Abraham entrusted all that he is to what God says. It hit. He realized that God was going to do everything for him. That's why when you read back through this text, you'll see counted over and over and over. He didn't count this against us. He counted he counted us righteous. Counted, 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 counted. It's an accounting term. It means to give someone credit. It means to say, I think you should have this, and they give it to you. God considered Abraham righteous, not because he did anything, but because Abraham believed what God said. He entrusted his whole life to God, period, Then look at verse six, just as. Notice that? This is, where, this is where Paul dives into another figure's life in the Old Testament. His name was David. God counted him righteous, just as David. Now, if you don't know who David is, if you never read about him, you should. He's a pretty stunning story. It's a pretty stunning story. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't looking for a lot of things in his life, but God found him. I mean, he was the greatest king of the Jewish people. He, he expanded their territory. He brought the ark back to the people of God. Um, he was wealthy. God considered him a man after his own heart. David had all, has all these accolades. David, David accomplished so much. There's so much he could have confidence in. There's so much he can have confidence in. But... There's also a large portion of David's life where he was publicly, profoundly humbled. He used his power to manipulate a situation so that he could fulfill and satisfy desires with a woman that wasn't his wife. He used his power to do that. And there are even some indications from the text that he even used force on Bathsheba. Scandalous, horrific. And then, and then he had a meeting with one of his greatest special forces guys. Because they had special forces back then, you know. And, and, and he positioned this guy so that in the hopes that he would be killed and die. Well, that was the woman's husband. Spectacular public failures. And then look at these verses, six, seven, and eight. 
God, through Paul, reminds us of Psalm 32. It was a writing of David's. It was him looking at his own life. And look what he says. Blessed is the man who God forgives and, notice the next phrase, doesn't count against them. It hit. So with David, as he looked at his life, he couldn't say, well, I'm hoping that my good things outweigh my bad things. No way. His only hope is not just that God forgives and lifts the burden of shame and guilt off of him. It's not just that God forgives you and me and takes that burden off of us. It's that God doesn't count our sins against us. Beloved, that is amazing. That is grace. And in not only not counting our sins against us, he considers us righteous. He's taken off our sin and counted us as righteous. Has that truth hit in your life? We need it to hit over and over and over. Anyone ever struggle with being bored with the gospel? I do. It's not as fresh to me as I want it to be. You struggle with that too? Yeah, 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 enough about Jesus. Now let's just get to how I can have a better life. I know Jesus did all this, but tell me how to fix this in my life. I'm not worried about Jesus now. I got them. I'm good with him, but tell me how to fix this. Ever find yourself moving that direction? It's easy to do. Then look what happens. In verses 9 through 17, God, through the Apostle Paul, goes back into Abraham's life because he anticipates that those who are in the Roman church would have these questions. Well, what about circumcision? And what about, what about the law? 9 through 12, what about circumcision? 13 through 17, what about the law? What was Abraham's relationship to those? Very quickly, if you look at verse 9 through 12, if you read back through those, the basic gist of the answer is this. What's Abraham's relationship to circumcision? Well, to put a button on it and not get lost in details, here it is. Verse 3 of this chapter is quoting Genesis 15. Circumcision happens in Genesis 17. Circumcision is after Abraham was hit with the reality of grace. Circumcision, as verse 11 says, is a sign and a seal. Those of you that like nerding out on these kinds of things, circumcision was a picture, it was a sign, it illustrated righteousness by saying, I'm willing to be cut off for you, Abraham. Don't forget that. Yes, I'm gonna require you to do it to yourself, but I'm gonna do it to your soul. I will be cut off for you. And it's a seal. This comes from God. Abraham didn't make it up on his own. Everything about circumcision is picturing God, not Abraham. Not anything that he has done. No decision that he's made. Nothing that he has done. Circumcision is about God and his grace. Same with baptism. In 13 through 17, where he talks about the law, here, put a button on it real quick. The law came through Moses 500 years after Abraham. So the promises of God did not come through Abraham's obedience. It wasn't that God blessed him because he obeyed. It's not that Abraham, <clears throat> excuse me, 
kept the law and therefore earned the promises of God. The law was codified after. Wow. Excuse me. Last week it was a spider. This week I got this. Remember the time I mentioned the wasp last week? I forgot, I failed to mention that it actually landed on me. Do you all remember that? Now I'm way off. Excuse me. 13 through 17 is talking about the law. Well, what's Abraham's relationship to it? Well, that was way after Abraham. Didn't have any effect on him at all in beginning or maintaining a relationship with God. It didn't earn anything with God. It never has and it never will. Well, that was experiencing the gift through Abraham and David. How about we just spend some time trying to enjoy the giver? Look at the last part of 17 all the way through 25. Let's, let's just spend some time thinking about how we can enjoy the giver. What, what God does here is he takes us so, so deep into Abraham's life. So deep into Abraham's life. Remember, those verses, when you go back and read them, what you'll find is that Abraham is thinking about the promises of God. Abraham is thinking about all that God has promised him. Abraham is meditating on the giver. He knows that God has promised him a nation. He knows that God has promised him that he will have a son. He knows that God has promised him that all the earth will be affected. And Abraham is internalizing that. Look in verse 19. He's internalizing that. And in thinking about all those things, he looks at himself. God, you've promised me a son. You've promised me a nation. You've promised that the whole world will be affected. Um, I'm internalizing that and I'm as good as dead. That's what, 19, that's what verse 19 says, isn't it? It's right there. I'm about 100 and uh, Sarah's in her 90s. Um, we don't have a son. God, you've promised this, but I'm as good as dead. Isn't that stunning to think about? If we're going to enjoy the giver, There's two takeaways to this in enjoying the giver. The first one is this. What God says is greater than what we feel in our perceptions of ourself. What God says is greater than how we feel and what we perceive even about ourselves. Friends, faith is not optimism. Faith is not hoping in yourself. One of the biggest lies that we struggle with that we confess this morning, that's everywhere, is that we can be self-made. that dependence on God is something that's not good. That we actually have the power in ourselves to make ourselves happy, to define who we are and what we want and use our abilities to get everything. 
Life is about getting outside of ourselves, not centering everything on the self. Life is about getting outside of ourselves to change, to grow, to worship. Not worship ourselves, but God. What God says is greater than how we feel and how we perceive things. You see, faith happens when God's word meets our life. So if you're trying to live your life without God and not bring him into situations, your faith probably won't be stretched and grow that much. Because maybe you got a little bit of God over here, but actually it's just God so I can improve myself. What God says is more important than what we feel and what we think about ourselves. Abraham looked at himself and he knew he was as good as dead. And yet he knew what God said. The second takeaway is this. If we are going to enjoy and delight in the giver, we need to be preoccupied with God. Preoccupied with God. What Abraham started to do just before he made those statements in, in verse 19, Abraham was meditating and thinking about the promises that God made to him, and Abraham started to focus and be preoccupied with God, and in particular, the power of God. How do we know that? Because when you look at the end of 17 and into 18, what you find is that he starts thinking about creation. My God is the one who brings something out of nothing. He created all that we see from nothing. Abraham got himself back into the four-part story. You remember this? Most of us have grown up interpreting and thinking the Bible is basically a two-part story, rebellion and redemption. And the Bible's a four-part story. And Abraham is going back into the, to the first part of the story. He's thinking about creation. He's thinking about the power of God. And he's thinking about all that God is. And he's realizing that, look, in and of myself, I can do nothing. But with God, there are no limits. With him, what is impossible is absolutely possible. What is impossible to me is nothing for God. So Abraham starts thinking about how powerful God is and how great God is. Even in those moments when he thought and when he knew he was as good as dead. In other words, Abraham continues to act and Abraham continues to follow because of God's power. God even has the power to raise the dead. And if this still seems super abstract to you, just look at the last couple verses because God wants to remind us that, oh yeah, this whole thing about Abraham and David, it's for us. These things were written so that we might understand Abraham, but also it applies to us. Look at verse 24. But for our, excuse me, verse 23. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, verse 24, but for ours also, for our sakes also. And then, Look at the connection. It's written for us because we have Jesus. It always comes back to Christ. 
to be preoccupied with God and to be caught up into his story and to think about his power is clearly displayed in Jesus. As the text says, who was delivered over for our salvation and raised for our justification. Jesus is the one that was pictured as being torn in two in Genesis 15. Jesus is the one whose righteousness we have. Jesus is the one who gives us every single thing before God. It always comes back to Jesus. Therefore, friends, step into him, put on Christ, bring him into your everyday life. When was the last time that you sensed that you were absolutely dead? You know, I'm talking about an enormous amount of things you have to do at work, and you're like, I'm looking at what I'm capable of doing, and I can't do this. I'm as good as dead on this one. When was the last time that you were forced to get outside of yourself? When was the last time that you were uncomfortable? When was the last time in which you came to the end of yourself? Because my hunch is that God gives us those opportunities all of the time. They don't just happen when big things happen in our lives, although that's true. They do happen when we go through very difficult times. But have you come to the end of yourself recently? Have you fought against it by getting mad or just trying to control more? Or have you started bringing God and his power and all that he is into your life? Have you started bringing Jesus more and more into your workplace, into your relationships? Have you started to live by faith? Because we need to.